Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Janet Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities. And today, because we're in the midst of an election, we're talking about a few of the historical events that helped shape modern presidential politics. Eric Hinderocker, Distinguished Professor of History, is with me to discuss some of these events, including the Electoral College and the elections of 1800 and 1824. Before we get into these consequential consequential elections of the 1800s, let's first discuss the Electoral College because I think it's important to establish some of that background for some people who may not know. So can you just give a brief history of the Electoral College and why we use that rather than the popular vote? Yeah, I'm happy to. I think, you know, the Electoral College is, is so interesting. It's such a such an important institution in uh, the U.S. Constitution. And, you know, people are often kind of confused, puzzled by why it even exists. Um, and in fact, uh, but, you know, it, I think it's common for people to to think, well, I mean, the founders must have had some good reason for introducing the Electoral College. I mean, in fact, the the idea for the Electoral College came very late in the summer of 1787 during the Constitutional Convention. It wasn't even proposed for the first time until September. Um, And it was proposed because people have been trying to figure out all summer long how to elect a president, what was a sensible mechanism and they weren't happy with anything they'd come up with. The the idea that was prevalent until the Electoral College was introduced was that the president would be selected by Congress. Um, that proposal was actually approved in June by an eight to two vote. But nobody really liked this idea because the problem with having Congress select the president is that in the constitutional system, the president's supposed to be kind of a counterweight to, to Congress, right? The president has the power of the veto. Um, they wanted the the founders wanted the the two those two branches of government to be distinct, and they thought you know if the if the Congress is selecting the president and the president is dependent on Congress and he's not going to be a a strong independent force. The other possibility was to hold a national popular election, and they talked about this, but there were two main problems with just having a national election. One problem was that they were concerned that there would be candidates for president who would not have a national profile. And this is a kind of concern that doesn't make any sense today. But in the 18th century, you know, they thought if Massachusetts has some, you know, John Adams character um, and, you know, nobody in South Carolina has heard of him, they won't really be able to make a good judgment. That is a an issue that's clearly kind of gone by the wayside in the modern in modern times, but it was a compelling argument at the time that um, ordinary citizens would not really know candidates from other states or regions. And the second big consideration, which was really important in, for the southern states, is that if you have a national election for states like Virginia, whose population was 40% African-American or South Carolina, whose population was two-thirds African-American, that that would mean a large proportion of the people, of the adult males in your state, wouldn't be voters. So the Southern states would be systematically disadvantaged because of their reliance on the, on the institution of slavery uh, as a labor system. There's kind of an interesting you know, problem 
Um, and so the idea of a national election seemed, you know, basically like a non-starter. They also didn't want to give the power to make choices to the states. They did not want the president to represent the states. State legislatures were already selecting senators under the Constitution, but they didn't want state legislatures to have the power to choose a president. They wanted it to be grounded in a pop, you know, in, 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 in a popular national choice. And so the Electoral College was this kind of brilliant last minute compromise or last minute solution, last minute workaround, where you elect a group of people specifically for the purpose of choosing a president um, and um, therefore importing the three-fifths compromise, which, which gave states more representation in the House of Representatives than they would have had if, it was, if their populations were just based on um, their white population. It kind of imports the three-fifths compromise into presidential elections. It also, although they didn't really talk about this in Philadelphia, because, the, because every state's electoral college representation is a total number of people in Congress, it means that um, every state has uh, has a number of people in the, in the electoral college, you know, the, the representatives plus the senators in the state. And um, over time, one of the things that that, that has done is give the um, give small states a huge advantage over large states in um, electoral college representation. This was not something they talked about in Philadelphia, but it's become pretty noticeable. You know, for example. Utah, we have four uh, congressional districts and two senators. So in terms of our population base, we have four representatives. But because you add the two senators to that, that's a 50% boost to the kind of electoral power of the state of Utah. California, by comparison, has 53 congressional districts. So they have 55 uh, electors which only boosts their representation by 3.7%, right? So over time, one of the weird kind of effects of the Electoral College has been to really um, strengthen the hand of small states in presidential elections, which, you know, is something that um, might argue over time for rethinking the Electoral College. There's nothing about it that makes it... um, that should make it sacrosanct. You know, it was a kind of a jerry-rigged solution at the time. And um, in the modern era, you know, it creates these kind of significant distortions, right? I mean, um, in the election of, of 2016, Hillary Rodham Clinton received almost 3 million more popular votes than Donald Trump did. And yet Trump just swamped her in the Electoral College, 306 votes to 232 votes. So, you know, that that kind of um, that kind of distortion reflects the kind of imperfections of the Electoral College system. And you could say that the, the principle, the old principle of, of, of one man, one vote or one adult person, one vote is not really being served so well anymore in, in presidential elections. After, I mean, just understanding the Electoral College, it is all very complicated. I think. And I, we could probably just talk about the Electoral College for this entire podcast. <laughs> but uh, 
Instead, I think we'll, I think we'll go ahead and um, move on to these talking about these elections and the impact they have had on current politics. So let's first talk about um, the election of 1800. There have been multiple elections throughout history that have had a major impact. But one of those was the election of 1800 and the creation of the two-party system. Can you talk about the significance of that election? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, the, the election of 1800 was a really critical uh, kind of watershed election. It was the fourth election for president. Um, and um, just as you said, Jana, it's the, the election where partisan politics really emerged uh, for the first time. It's also the place where one of the huge imperfections in the Constitution became apparent um, for the first time. The Constitution held that um, the president was going to be the person with the most votes in the Electoral College, and the um, the runner-up in votes in the Electoral College was going to be uh, vice president. And so in the first couple of presidential elections, it was a no-brainer. George Washington won the most electoral votes. Uh, John Adams was his vice president. Um, and then in the election of 1796, John Adams ran for president, and so did, so did uh, Thomas Jefferson. And um, by that time, they were, they were um, the, the opposition between them was beginning to emerge. So you have this odd, this odd situation in 1796 where Adams wins the presidency. Thomas Jefferson, who kind of ran against him because he was really emerging as uh, the, the party system was beginning to form. And, and Jefferson was the figurehead of the Jeffersonian Republican Party that was developing in opposition to the, the Federalist Party. Jefferson ended up being Adams as vice president, which is a little odd, um, but didn't cause you know anything like a constitutional crisis. In 1800, though, um, the um, the parties ran tickets for the first time. So Jefferson ran as a Jeffersonian Republican, along with Aaron Burr, who was intended to be his vice presidential candidate. Only for that system to work right, somebody, one of the electors who is committed to the Jeffersonian Republican Party has to vote for somebody else for, uh, uh, you know, uh, vice president or there will be a tie. And that's exactly what happened in the election of 1800, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr tied. And so even though they were both, you know, Republican candidates and the intention was that Jefferson was a presidential candidate and Burr was the vice presidential candidate, the, the election went to the, to the house of representatives. And what's really weird is that once it got to the house of representatives, there was enough opposition to Jefferson that um, there were people, nobody really wanted to break the deadlock at first. And so you have this situation, there were 16 states at the time. Each state gets one vote in deciding um, between these two leading candidates. There were eight states that favored Jefferson. There were six states that favored Burr. And then there were two states where there was a tie, and so there was no vote cast in either way. So Jefferson only had half the states. He needed a simple majority to win. Well, this caused a week's worth of debate in Congress, um, several dozen ballots, uh, and there was just this deadlock. Jefferson had eight states but couldn't get nine. 
finally, um, you know, there's some kind of behind the scenes maneuvering. Um, Burr supporters in Vermont and Maryland were persuaded to file blank ballots. They didn't want to vote for Jefferson, but they didn't vote for Burr either. But that gave that was enough to give Jefferson 10 states. And he went went on to become president and Aaron Burr became his, you know, rather controversial vice president. Um, that election led people to realize that this was a real problem in the Constitution. And so the 12th Amendment uh, followed, which modifies the way electors vote. And basically, um, among other things, it says that every elector um, casts two votes, one for president and one for vice president. And so kind of resolving that that constitutional crisis. Um, but also highlighting the fact that, you know, when um, when a presidential election gets thrown into the House of Representatives, it's kind of a case of all bets are off. Uh, you know, some people at the at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 thought lots of presidential elections would end up in the House of Representatives, maybe a majority. Um, fortunately, fortunately, that has not been the case um, because those elections that go to Congress to be resolved can be kind of messy. So that kind of, uh, I guess, leads us into the election of 1824 that was also determined in the House of Representatives, correct? That's right. That's the only other one that's ever been um, uh, sent to the House. Yep. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize. Okay, so that answers another question I had. I have no idea how many uh, elections were actually determined in the House of Representatives. Can you talk a little bit more about the election of 1824 and that lasting impact? Yeah, the election of 1824 was um, interesting because, I mean, I think you could say it really highlighted the fact that, you know, people um, after the election of 1824, very clearly the expectation was that democracy should prevail, not some independent judgment of the House. This is one of the questions, you know, if you throw an election, a close election into the House of Representatives, is it the House's job to just pick the person that was most popular, even though they didn't win, you know, or or can the House exercise independent judgment? And that was the question in 1824, because in that election, there were four candidates and Andrew Jackson was the most popular one. You know, he's kind of a, he was a pretty controversial character in 1824 among the kind of, um, you know, the Washington elite. He won a plurality. He won more votes than anybody else and got um, 99 electoral college votes. And the runner up was John Quincy Adams, son of the second president of the United States and somebody with, you know, a lot of people would say much better credentials than Andrew Jackson. Uh, John Quincy Adams was the runner up with 85 votes. And then there were two other candidates. William Crawford had 41 votes and the Candidate who was a distant fourth with 37 electoral college votes was uh, Henry Clay, who happened to be the Speaker of the House, the guy that ran the business of the House of Representatives, which is where the election was thrown to when um, when uh, nobody won a majority of the electoral college votes. So the House um, debated on this topic, and under Henry Clay's leadership, chose. John Quincy Adams as the next president of the United States over Andrew Jackson. 
And then Adams turned around and nominated Henry Clay as his um, as his uh, Secretary of State. And so Andrew Jackson called this a corrupt bargain. He said, "Look, obviously there was backroom dealing. They, you know, squeezed me out." This is a couple of Washington insiders scratching each other's back. And this became, you know, his kind of rallying rallying cry for the next four years until the election of 1828 when he did win uh, the popular vote. And John Quincy Adams ended up being a one-term president who was swamped by, uh, by Jackson in the, in the um, subsequent presidential election. So they're, uh, you know, kind of an interesting... It's kind of, that, that's a particularly interesting case because, you know, it's not clear that Henry Clay or anybody in the House of Representatives felt like they had any obligation to select Jackson just because he was the popular choice. They felt like, you know, they were the wise men sitting in the House of Representatives and they could act on their own judgment. And Jackson pretty clearly proved them wrong on that on that point in the long run. It's so interesting to learn about these um, elections because, I mean, each election seems like it gets more and more complicated. But unless you know, kind of historically, all it seems like all of the elections have just been as complicated or they just as the next. Is I mean, is that fair to say? I mean, none of these elections really ever seem straightforward. It, it really is true. I mean, the 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 process of um you know, organizing an election on a national scale is kind of really fraught. You know, I mean, Donald Trump is making a big deal this year about how we should mistrust, we should be prepared to mistrust the results of this election, right? But I mean, the truth is that we our electoral system runs on trust. It's very decentralized. The national government doesn't run anything with respect to elections, right? They're all conducted at the state and local level. So there's not one national system for elections. There's 50 systems. And, um, well, and, you know, more than that, if you include the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, you know, so this is, um, you could argue that this is a strength of the American system, right? That kind of decentralized control makes it much harder for bad actors to manipulate the outcome of these elections. On the other hand, it means there's a lot more variables in play. And so just as you say, Jenna, the, the, you know, the results can be really confusing sometimes. I mean, it's not that long ago. Many of us still remember the election of 2000 when um, the results of the election in Florida were contested. This was the, the um, Bush versus Gore election of 2000. Results in Florida were contested. And the presidency hung in the balance, and the Supreme Court of the United States ultimately ended up um, finding in favor, you know, of a Republican victory, a, a victory for Bush in in Florida, which gave Bush the presidency. But we we all had to wait around for a while for the Supreme Court to rule on this, you know, this election outcome in in this one large and important Southern state. It's a little bit too like. You know, another example of this, there's one other time when Congress has decided the outcome of a presidential election, and that's different from an election being thrown into the House. But but in 1870, at the, the election of 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes was the Republican candidate, Samuel Tilden was the Democrat, 
and um, Tilden ended up winning both the popular elect popular vote and the electoral college vote. But there was a controversy over the election results in three southern states. This was in 1876. This is a decade after the end of the Civil War. The southern the, the southern states had been occupied by federal troops, and they had to um, they had to you know, re-qualify for membership in the union one by one. And um, there were two different electoral results reported in three states. So so um, originally what was counted were, were um, you know, Democratic victory in those three states. Republicans challenged those outcomes. Um, and so Congress has to decide disputed elections. Congress, the House plus the Senate. And so in order to decide this disputed election, because those three states had enough electoral votes that, you know, the, the election hung in the balance, um, the Congress created the Federal Election Commission in that case specifically for the purpose of reviewing the um, results of, of this election. It was made up of people from the House of Representatives, from the Senate, from the Supreme Court. Um, and they, you know, reviewed the case and, and voted on um, who, which, which results to certify from those southern states. And that the vote was split strictly down party lines. All the Republicans voted for the Republican candidate. All the Democrats voted for the Democratic candidate. But the Federal Election Commission had more Republicans than Democrats. So even though Tilden had initially won both the popular vote and the uh, Electoral College vote, that result was thrown out. Rutherford B. Hayes ended up winning the presidency that year by a single vote. Um, and in exchange, knowing that the southern states would be furious about this outcome, in exchange, the Republican Party agreed to end Reconstruction, remove the last of the federal troops that were occupying southern states, and um, bring the Reconstruction era to an end, allow all the states to return to um you know, normal civil government. I mean, that, when you think about contested presidential elections, that <laughs> yeah. one seems to me to be about as, you know, crazy as they get, as, as they come. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and give us kind of this historical background that I think a lot of people, in, including myself, don't know. I don't remember, you know, learning about the, the details of these elections when I was in school. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I'm happy to do it. It's always fun to it's always fun to talk a little history. That was Eric Hinderocker, Distinguished Professor of History. For more information about the College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu and don't forget to vote.